Greetings, lovers of great music, and welcome to Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier. I'm so grateful that so many of you have made Journey to the Stage part of your podcast rotation. I've got new episodes dropping about every two weeks. So thank you for telling your friends about Journey to the Stage. There is no marketing department here nor budget, and so I want to thank you for helping this podcast rank in the top 10% of all podcasts around the world, which is pretty mind-blowing to me still. I'm so grateful to each of you for tuning in. And because we're not just a rock podcast, I have the freedom to have on rock artists like my guest today, but also singer, songwriter, Americana, uh, modern composers, country, folk, Tony-nominated writers of Broadway musicals, and so on and so on. I get to have on multi-Grammy winners and artists who are still cutting their teeth and, and everywhere in between. I get to have on legends and veterans and new artists And that's the podcast that I want. And so I appreciate you for joining me on this journey. We've got an artist on today that I think you're really going to enjoy. Uh, Growing up in L.A. in the 80s meant that there was always great rock and roll around. And Michael Lockwood and his band Lions and Ghosts were a vibrant part of that whole musical scene. Um, The band takes its influences from everyone from the Beatles to T-Rex to classic songwriters like The Birds and more. Their love for memorable choruses and lyrics is with, uh, mixed with psychedelic twists have shown through very well on their debut album called Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime. The record received a good amount of airplay um, in, its, in its first single, Merry Go Round, in, in contradiction from stations like K-Rock in Los Angeles. The band toured a, a great deal with bands like Gene Loves Jezebel, Love and Rockets, The Church, The Alarm, and so on. Chances are, if you were at one of those cool shows at the Hollywood Palladium in the 80s, you, you may have heard these guys. Michael Lockwood has recorded, produced, and played live and written with many notable artists like Amy Mann, Carly Simon, Fiona Apple, Susan Hoffs, and many more. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you, ensconced in the artist throne today, producer, guitarist, writer, and music label owner, Michael Lockwood. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, it's great to have you on today. Welcome to Journey to the Stage. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me today, and thanks for that intro. It was uh, yeah, man. Bigger, bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are you doing these days? How, how's life treating you? Life is life is pretty good. It's busy. We were talking yeah. beforehand. I mean, you know, we have kids. We have a career. We've got, you know, all things that are our new modern world too to sort of fit into the puzzle. So it's um, it's fascinating these days, but uh, I'm not yeah. going to complain because nobody cares. Nobody compares. <laughs> nobody cares about true. the complaining, right? <laughs> well, and you just got married, so congratulations, man. Thank you. That's that's true. On top of all and everything else, we had a, a really beautiful little wedding up in Santa Barbara. It was really great with friends and family. So that was nice. That's a, a new chapter here. That's super cool. Congrats to you and your bride. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, w- one of the really cool things that started to happen uh, as my podcast started to grow and find its audience is I had several PR firms start to reach out to me and say, hey, 
what do you think about this artist? Would you like to have them on? And I'd listen. And if they were a good fit, I absolutely would, would book them. I only have on artists who make the music that I genuinely love. For me, it's kind of an integrity thing. If I say I love a song or an album or an artist, it will be 100% true. So when Wendy uh, Benford Jones sent me the just released album by your, your band Lions and Ghosts, I listened to the album and absolutely was swept away by it. And I know I wanted to have you on. Mike, Michael, it's, it's a really great record. Um, oh, kind of set the scene for us. How, how did you guys become a band back in the 80s? And you know, kind of how did how'd that come about? Well, I mean, it's an interesting time period for sure. And it seems that you're way too young to even know anything about that, uh, that time period. But, uh, so, well, I was 17 when you're, when the album was released. So, oh, you were okay. Yeah. Well, you, you look very young. The listeners well, thank can't you. <laughs> I know, but, uh, yeah, it was, you know, LA was a very vibrant music scene back then. It was its turn as, as it were, you know, in our history of music, when you look back, more so looking back than looking forward, you see different areas of the planet having sort of a uh, epicenter of music. You know, lots of people are familiar mm-hmm. with the thing that happened in Seattle. And there was big right. scenes in Boston, in New York, Los Angeles. Obviously, the UK's had many, many uh, musical scenes during different decades. But uh, during the 80s, it was a really vibrant time in uh, Southern California. And we had a lot of different genres all sort of popping up. And we had this post-punk thing, which I'll kind of say that might be where Lines and Ghosts was first sort of um, pigeonholed into. You know, we were coming out of that um, late 70s, early 80s thing. And we did have pop overtones. We did have some rock business happening in the group and we had a lot of different influences. So when we first started, um, I think in either late 83 or early 84 is when I met the other guys in Lions and Ghosts and they were formerly a band called Banner, which was kind of a mod group, which wouldn't mm. be similar to like the Jam or yeah. one of one of those bands or the Who a bit, early Who. When I met them, they had just changed their name and seemed like they were also changing their direction. So they had played me a bunch of early demos and I met the drummer had seen me play and said, are you interested in coming to, uh, to do an audition with us? So um, I auditioned in this funky ass little rehearsal room in uh, East Hollywood uh, on Melrose. And um, we all hit it off really well. And that sort of became our journey together. We we were all big fans of music and in that we had studied how songs work. And so that was part of the makeup of that band. We played everywhere in Southern California during that time. And we began to have a, a fairly solid following. We played all the local clubs. We started getting the attention of some managers. We started getting the attention of some record labels. We seemed to be the right fit for a lot of bands that were coming around at that time. And you had mentioned we'd open for Gene Loves Jezebel. We'd yeah. open for The Church. We'd open for The Alarm, Love and Rockets. You know, all the bands that were sort of playing that theater and above level, we opened a lot of those shows. So cool. And we were very fortunate. 
And then on the other side of that, we were opening for bands like Guns N' Roses and playing with these rock and roll and sort of, I hate to use the term hair metal, but you know what I mean. It was that second second coming of rock Mm -hmm. in the 80s. I mean, it, it had gone through this huge explosion during the 70s and then sort of disco, new wave and punk sort of quelled that scene for quite a while. And then it resurged again. So we were doing all those shows. And in all of that, we were supported by all the other bands, just like everybody was doing during that time. There wasn't a lot of competition. It was all super helpful. And I've told this story before, but, you know, the night that we opened for Guns N' Roses, it was at the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard, completely packed. We had tons of our fans there, tons of Guns N' Roses fans, clearly. And that night was the night they got signed to Geffen Records. So they announced that on the stage that night. So it was a a pretty spectacular night. And that, you know, energy was high and that just ramped it up to 11. And after we opened the show, we went out to watch them play. They were on fire. And uh, I remember looking, I guess, at the drummer, Michael Murphy. And I said, you know, I know it's going to happen for us. I can feel that it's going to happen. And that was um, pretty crazy because back then it was not easy to get a record deal. And we got that deal because A, we worked hard. B, we were part of a scene that was happening at that moment. And we were right place, right time. Very lucky, like all the stars aligned on every level to make that happen. It's very different now. It's, you know, how many views you have on TikTok and you, you know how different the scene is now. So I was right within months of that show. We were being courted by MCA Records. We were being courted by EMI. And um, we were fortunate enough to have a choice. We made the choice to work uh, with EMI and we were signed and then became a whole different journey for us that, you know, set us forward to finding producers and moving on with that next step. But, you know, I, I hope that answers your question in that that's what the scene was like. And that was our journey meeting and our journey getting to really the next step, which is actually the beginning. <laughs> right. Well, that's a great answer. And, you know, it's it's kind of sad because if you look at those clubs, many of those clubs from back in the 80s, they're gone. Oh, um, that it's, it's scene really was sad. just on fire. I mean, the whiskey and Gazaris, I mean, and on and on. I mean, there were so many places and they were booked all the time because there were so many bands. We just don't see that anymore. And I hope it comes back. I hope there's a swing back to that because, man, it was an incredible time for music, as, as you well know. So here you are. You're in your, what, probably early 20s back then. I was, you're yeah. opening for some of these great bands, getting signed. What was that like for you? You were kind of living your rock and roll dream. What, what was that for you? I, I was living the rock and roll dream. That's totally true. You know, as a younger kid, when I was about eight years old, I really wanted to play guitar. My parents were really supportive of that and bought me guitar, got me lessons. And there I am playing one finger chords and, you know, learning folk songs. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, 
Um, there's no room in the Beatles for another guitar player. So, <laughs> you know, I, I did really dream big when I was a little kid. You know, all the things that I loved, I visualized and I feel like I put that out in the universe that that was going to be my journey in life. I didn't know and still don't really know how to do anything else other than what I do. Ultimately, the dream was getting that recording contract with EMI. That, for me, was the true living the dream. Yeah. You know, I thought that was the whole journey. I didn't realize that that actually was the very first baby step. That's pretty incredible. And you guys got a good amount of play on on K-Rock. I mean, you were a little more you know, on the rock scale, maybe a little bit more on the, what we would call now alternative. It wasn't really called that back then, Yeah. but, but you also got some airplay on KLOS. So you kind of had, you know, mainstream rock, what we now know as alternative over on the K rock side. And so it's not surprising you got to tour with some of those quote unquote K rock bands, but also guns and roses. That's, that's pretty cool. People who didn't grow up in LA in that period of time don't know what you and I had with great radio stations. We had we did have K Rock and KLOS and KMET and KNAC. It was great. It was a that's what made it one of the great things about growing up in a city like Los Angeles is we had great rock radio. And to know that you guys were getting play kind of on both ends of the spectrum must have been pretty cool for you guys. It I gotta say, the first time you hear one of your songs on the radio, that's another like Whoa. Oh, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. I was driving on the 101. I was making this banking turn from Hollywood to the Valley and K-Rock contradiction came on and I was, uh, I, I didn't know where to go. didn't know what oh, to do. And, you know, it's not like you have a cell phone to call somebody. I just was in the car by myself and I went, yeah. wow, it's really cool. And, you know, you talking about the, those radio stations in that scene, Let's not forget to mention we had great college radio too. Oh yes, K- absolutely. K- yeah. KXLU, we had KCRW, still uh, still one of my favorite stations. There's the Northridge CSUN. There was one out of Santa Barbara too. I can't remember the call letters, but Ooh. one of the, from one of the Santa Barbara campuses had a great great radio station as well. It was a great little scene, and I remember us prior to being signed going to KXLU and going to some of these local college radio stations. And in fact, somewhere in one of my boxes behind you, <laughs> there are, I think, some demos that we recorded at uh, Loyola Marymount College. And, oh, cool! And it was like a project for one of the, you know, one of the students or whatever. So it was uh, LA was an interesting time. And yeah, I mean, great music on on every station. I want to play a song here in a minute. We're going to play the opening cut, but share a little bit about this. So we know you, obviously you guys got together. You went and recorded this album. You're getting play. You're getting airtime. You're touring with some great bands. Now, you know, as we fast forward a little bit, a few decades down the road, this has never been released digitally. Um, right. What made you want to go back to this project and say, you know what? I think there is an itch out there that maybe doesn't know exists that, <laughs> that you know what I mean? And and like, there are people who need to hear this that don't even know they need to hear this. Um, <laughs> that's where that. I stood because it was new to me. I didn't hear it back in the day when it was first released. And I love this album. I mean, it is really, okay. really good. What made you guys want to say, let's put this back out there for a new generation. I think that the answer is 
really way too long, but the, the Cliff Notes version is, it was odd to me that you can open your phone and listen to just about anything that's ever been put out. And it's rare to really come across albums these days that aren't on the web somehow, somewhere, right? And, uh, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, Pandora, like all the, the usual suspects. So I, I thought it was sad that some of the Lions and Ghost stuff wasn't out there. Yeah, we had a big following and we sold a lot of records in California. You know, and we did we didn't make the big leap. There are pockets on the planet where where people love this. I mean, Portugal, uh, Sweden, you know, all these different odd places that we saw record sales at the time. But in this day and age, I just I felt like that's weird. Why isn't that happening? And it's not like I can call someone at EMI because I don't know anybody there anymore. Obviously, that was a long time ago. And I stayed friends with a lot of people in the business over the years and everybody's moved around and everybody like me is now thinking outside the box and trying to reimagine and recreate what the box is. So um, I felt like one, it really should be out there for, for many, many reasons. Some of them are selfish ones. Some are because my kids are like, uh, I don't see it on Apple music. Uh Oh, Dad better get busy, right? There's that. There's also, you know, after the fact of already gearing up to do this, there's the Kate Bush phenomena too. Absolutely. Which is, there's a song, and and not comparing one with the other, but Kate Bush, who has a brilliant career, has an amazing catalog of music, obviously available everywhere. But did my kids know who Kate Bush was? No. You know, they know who the Beatles are. They know who their grandfather is. They know who the Rolling Stones are. They know those because of their parents, but they don't know a lot of music because it's not in the ether. And when the Kate Bush thing happened, mm-hmm. they loved Kate Bush. They sure. listened to that song all the time. They oh, yeah. streamed it constantly. And to them, that was a brand new hit. Yeah, They didn't even really understand the concept that that woman is as old as their father and that their father had a crush on that woman when right. she came out, right? So there was that sort of thing. And I thought, you know, stranger things have happened, pun intended, <laughs> um, that, um, you know, why not have the lines and go stuff out there? Because maybe it is right for something. Maybe it does deserve a reintroduction to people. Maybe it needs its second life. Maybe it'll have nine lives. Who knows? But you know, through the process of going there and re-listening to it and re-examining it on uh, different levels, whether they're sonic levels, production levels, mastering or songwriting or whatever, I found a new love for it. Yeah. And um, and I never lost my love. It was just a rekindled love for it. Sure. It brought back tons of great memories. And I also thought, not for nothing, you know, the album actually holds up really well. I it 100% really agree. Doesn't sound, you know, you and I both know you can put on some 80s records. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to name any names. Right. And you go, what a great song. What a horrendous recording. Yeah. Um, Production wise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we all went down that 80s path. You know, woo, bigger is better. Let's have a lot of gated reverbs and yada, yada, yada. But I did feel like the production was really good. And I felt like, yeah. It has its 80s moments, 
Sure. But not, but not so much. And so I, I felt agree. like the production who was Peter Walsh, who worked with Peter Gabriel, Gene Loves Jezebel, and a yeah. Simple Minds, a lot of great bands. He made great sounding records. And I felt like had possession of a great sounding record. And Tony Visconti, who you probably know, who produced tons of David Bowie records. Oh, yeah. Huge. The T-Rex records and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, he worked with Bowie off and on throughout Bowie's entire career. He did all the string arrangements. So I felt like, God, we have this little, it's kind of like a little lost treasure. It really is. And Agreed. I think that is a very good label for it. And I, I would agree. And in fact, that's what made me want to have you on and talk to you as an artist, because I agree there, it's a, it's a gem that more people need to hear. So let's pause. One thing I would add, you'd, you'd mention your kid's grandfather. Most people don't know, but your kid's grandfather is Elvis Presley. We don't have to go there. There's a whole backstory there, but which is super cool. All right. So we're going to listen to the opening track here. This is Passion from Lions and Ghosts from the newly re-released album Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime on world famous K-Rock.
Michael, this is so good. And you're you're right. I think this holds up really, really well. To me, this this song I could easily hear in one of those quintessential 80s movies like um, Breakfast Club or um, 16 Candles. Not because it overly sounds like a song from the 80s. Clearly it is. But it's it's so anthemic. It's, and it's got a great hook. It's very melodic. And it's very, very catchy. And it's, it's just a really good song. I, I could totally hear it in one of those projects. And so maybe, maybe it will find a home in something. I think it's interesting that you brought that up. It is in an 80s movie. Really? Which one? Yeah. So I thought I'd share this little story with you. I don't know if I brought this up to anyone before. I'll give you just a tiny backstory. We wrote the song. We made a quick demo of it. Somehow that demo ended up in the hands of Gary Gutsman who is a famous movie producer. Okay. And he had ties to MCA, which is now Universal or whatever. You're right. He somehow was also friends with the head of A&R there. His name was Michael Goldstone. And Michael was a Lions and Ghosts fan. So that's probably, I'm thinking, how this song ended up with Gary. We get a call to go to the studio and to record Passion before we had a record deal. This is when we were being courted. So this probably was like that little piece of bacon. It's like, hey, guys, yeah. hey, look, look what MCA can offer you, right? <laughs> we had this great night. We recorded the song. And I remember walking into the, the loo and Gary walked in next to me. And it was a little intimidating because Gary is a, a very big movie producer. He worked on many mega, mega films. And he said, you know what? I think you got a hit on your hands and I'm going to make sure something happens with this song. Wow. So he placed the song in a movie called Modern Girls. Huh. Okay. And I'll Modern Girls, it, it was not, uh, obviously not like Breakfast Club, not like 16 Candles, not like the John Hughes films, right. but it was an 80s sort of cult classic. And so the song is in that movie, wow. which is really great and really cool. But it wasn't on the soundtrack. We weren't signed. So it's not on the vinyl oh. soundtrack. And so it's only in the movie. But I'm with you. That song is a song that belongs in that that medium. Agreed. I don't know Agreed. why. It's it's a stranger. It's a great, I think it's a great song to open an album. It's funny, you know, when I say these things, I don't mean to sound like I'm tooting my own no, horn. No, no, no. I'm right there with you 100%. It's weird because I'm slightly removed from it because I re-released it on my label. So I kind of look at it like a label guy now rather than oh, being right. in the band. I'm like, okay, let's get that in a TV show. Come on, kids. You know, uh, yeah. but it, and it also, you know, it wasn't a single off the record. It was overseas in Sweden. It was oh, released. Cool. As a single. But here it was Mary Goes Round, Contradiction, and... I think those were our two singles in America, but it, that probably should have been our single in America. You're right. Cause it, it was a sort of like bust through the doors and say, hi, here I am kind of song. Well, you know, most albums you have a song or two that you're going to skip, but to me, this is one I can let play all the way through. I can't even figure out what my favorite song is. It's probably stay. All um, right. I'm with you. That's my favorite. That's a good one. And I love your guitar work on that, by the way. Oh, thanks. Is that a hammered dulcimer in the opening of that? It is. It's, you know, that was interesting. In the studio, 
Peter Walsh, the producer, brought in somebody that he'd used on the Simple Minds records and stuff because we didn't re- we weren't a keyboard based group at all. Mm-hmm. We were a you know really just a we were a rock band. You're right. You know it was like we were a three piece with a singer. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he brought this guy in for some atmosphere, and I think he played on might have played on Passion, and he played on a couple other things. Not much. He did. He played that, and it, at the time it was a sample, which would have been pretty crazy, you know, in 1986 or whatever. That this guy had that kind of library, but um, yeah, it was a sampled uh, Hammer Dulcimer. That's right. That's good cool. Year. It's a really, really good song. I love the production on that. I mean, just the the whole melody. As I mentioned, I love your guitar work. I think the the dance you play with the singer is really, really interesting. Uh, oh, thanks. In that that's, song. that's interesting. That's something that I always think about. That's always on my mind on anything I work on. I'm always listening for phrases, whether it's obviously vocally delivered or even, even through a guitar, even drums, but I'm always a phrase that is memorable that helps to accentuate maybe what you've just heard or to set up what you're going to hear. And that seems to be something that that you maybe put some focus on, if if I'm not mistaken, because it, it's I can see a, a, a great deal of intentionality in the way you the way you phrase things and how they comport with everything that's going on around it. There's a great deal of intentionality there. Thank you for that, because it is something that's almost my first thought when I approach things on any instrument, more so on guitar than anything, because I've spent most of my life playing guitar. Yeah. And um, to me, my thought is that when the singer's not singing, if it's a big passage of time, there needs to be an, an event that is equally as important as the melody of that mm-hmm. song. Yeah. And in rock songs, that's a guitar solo, right? But I'm not that kind. I, I mean, I've been known to play a solo, but you know, that's not where my head goes. My head goes, what sort of melodic passage can I insert here to keep someone just as interested so that it becomes a peak? And then when it goes away, you're ready for the melody again. I think some guitar players can be there. I mean, we all can be self-serving, but I think sometimes some guitar players feel tempted. And as a guitar player myself, I understand this to look for their moment to shine as opposed to what is going to best serve the song. And sometimes that means taking yourself out of that a little bit. And it takes a great deal of restraint and and really humility, I think musically, but oftentimes that's where you get the best song. You are a hundred percent right. It's what serves the song best. That's Mm -hmm. all that's important. And, and when you say take yourself out of it, that could mean not playing at all, right? right? right. It, you have to, and I think that is an, more suited for an older man's game than a younger man's game, because it, I think it takes some experience and some sort of self-reflection to realize it's not all about me. And who gives a shit about that great distortion right. sound? I'll, I'll figure it, I'll figure it out somewhere right. not jamming in there but you know it's does it work for the song that's the important bit you know it's like okay how do we set this song up how do we tell a story and it's not just about the lyrical story it's about the instrumentation and boy it sounds like we we talked about your son earlier it sounds like he's on that path where he's 
listening to and discovering a lot of different music. He's listening to music yeah. that's not just pop or rock based. Right. And right. when you start listening to those other kinds of music, whether it's jazz or classical, you're listening for what a composer meant to have happen. Or in jazz, that's freeform communication. So those are all great tools for him. And I would certainly encourage any young musician to step back, become the best musician you can possibly be, and then figure out where your place is, either in the group of musicians or within the song. That's some sage advice. And for somebody who's been in it for so long, I think that any young musician, young or old, can really draw from that. I think what you shared is, is actually very profound. Now, when you went back to this album, I mean, this is 30 years ago. It's it's very different when you look at something through 20-something-year-old eyes as opposed to 50-something-year-old eyes. What's that like for you maybe to to revisit this, not only musically, but emotionally and just everything that surrounded this album, this period of time, these lyrics, how do you view these differently maybe than uh, than you did when you were just a young buck cutting his teeth? Uh, I will say that looking at it, listening to it umpteen million times again, right? Because I did the first time around and, and probably every few years I go back and listen to it. Uh, but listening to it now, it was a very cathartic process. And in that there was a rekindling of my relationship with Rick Parker, the singer. Yeah. And he's got a great voice, by the way. He has a great voice and he is a brilliant lyricist. And I would go into a story now, but I think I'm going to hold on to it because if we talk about Girl, I Love You, yeah, we will. I can tell you more about that part of that journey, which intersects with this. So it was so therapeutic because you're right, you know, 23 years old, maybe, or 22 years old when I'm doing this, you certainly, I don't know many 22-year-olds that have a, a very good handle on who they are right? And, and where they're really headed. I know there are some, but I certainly didn't. And I was trying to find myself as a person. I was trying to find myself as a musician. And, you know, the world is your oyster, but it's also very intimidating. And sometimes you limit yourself. So, I was very micro-focused at that point in my life, right? As I'm older now and I've gone through, through life and had many, many experiences with many great musicians, many great people, uh, emotionally, physically, like, you know, you run uh, spiritually, you run all this stuff through your life. It puts you in a different mindset and it, and you see through different eyes. And so listening to this and, and remembering, I had kept a diary of the entire process of making that record. Really? Wow. But I, I don't have it anymore. But I oh. but the process of writing it down really sort of cemented a lot of those memories. So I have a really clear recollection of where we lived, when we moved, who, who said what, who did what. What did we eat every effing day while we were in the studio? The time that we did claps and not one of us could clap in time. And we all got <laughs> off and went to, we ended up one by one firing ourselves and all going out to the lounge to watch another James Bond movie. I mean, you know, I have all these images, the people that worked at the studio, the waitress that worked at our favorite Italian restaurant in Soho. Like, you know, I remember all of that. 
now listening to it, looking at it, all of it is amazing and all of it is good and all of it is funny. Even those moments that were so effing serious to us Mm -hmm. at 23 years old, making this record, that note wasn't right. That, you know, you, you're so micromanaged or I micromanaged myself in that situation. Listening to it now, it's like, oh, that's a beautiful accident. That's a really nice engagement of drums and bass there. Oh, Jesus, that sounds really great. You know, like all the stuff melts away. The things that you were so worried about then, it's all one big, beautiful package. And it was very, very therapeutic for me. So, and and the journey of doing this whole thing was therapeutic to me. And reconnecting with Rick was therapeutic for me. Hopefully for him too, I don't know. That's super cool. I mean, that's actually a perfect segue because you guys created a, a brand new song to coincide with the release of the album. It's a song we'll listen to here in a minute. It's a really, really good song. It's Girl, I Love You. What can you tell us about what made you guys write? How did that happen? How different was that writing, you know, 30 something years later? How did how did that come to reality for you guys? It's my therapeutic story. It's my pandemic story. Mm. It's my uh, rekindling of a friendship story. It's like all those stories sort of mashed into one thing. Yeah. Just pre-lockdown, I received an email from a local musician named Kenwood Cooper. And I've known him for a long time. He was a a fan of Lions and Ghosts. And he's always stayed in touch with uh, Rick. And he stayed in touch with me. And I I know that Rick had worked with him in the past. And Kenwood and I had done something, I think. But anyway, he emailed me and said, hey, I'm working on this record and I have these three songs and I would love for you to play guitar on them. So I listened to three songs. I was like, yeah, that's great. Took tons of places to do lots of fun things. And hey, I have a home studio. Amazing. I can pour a cup of coffee and um, wear my pajamas and record at home. This is amazing. Beautiful. And as soon as I thought that to myself, he wrote me another email and said, "Oh, I booked a studio in Hollywood. It's Rick Parker's studio. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do the tracks there." I'm like, "Okay, cool." And I thought to myself, "God, I haven't seen Rick. I saw him maybe once or twice in 20 years. You know, yeah. I hadn't seen him in a really long time, and and for no particular reason, just life gets busy, yeah. and that's what happens, right?" Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's one of my old wives. Okay, yeah, well, I have to go see him, right? So I packed up all my stuff. I walked through the door of Rick's studio, and it was as if a day had not passed. Wow. It was, I was so happy to see him, and he didn't look a day older, and his body language, everything was just so Rick, and I'd spent so much time with him. Oh, yeah. And this was such an amazing sort of, come back together moment. So I sat down in the studio and we proceeded to talk for like two and a half hours. Unfortunately for Kenward, who was sitting there waiting for us to record (laughs) these songs, right? But Rick and I had a lot to talk about. And I will tell you my takeaway from it was that somehow an organic flow happened where I was able to finally give Rick his due from me. Wow. As a guy who 
had spent, you know, when, when you're 23, you guys are, we're fighting over everything. Sure. Not, not horribly, but you're just like, I don't like that flyer that you made. Who cares? But you know, at that time, all that stuff. So, so it was really nice to be able to have that moment and really be able to say to him, wow, you did an incredible job at this. I mean, we wouldn't have been this without you doing that. And it was just so great to be able to say all those things and have that conversation with him and him to me as well. Like he was able to acknowledge me in ways that we never did when we were 23 or 24. And Rick, you know, Rick is now a very successful Grammy winning mixer. So he's, he's in the business. He's worked tons of people. I went on to work with a ton of different people and I made my career as sort of a right hand man for a lot of different people who you named earlier and doing sessions and, and, and writing and doing things. So we had this great moment together. And then we had this great session where I played guitar for, you know, an hour or something on these three different songs. And it was really great. And as I was leaving to him, I said, Hey, are you interested in sharing like a Dropbox folder of some new material work? And I'm really curious to hear what you're doing. You personally, not what you're working on in a job. He goes, yeah. So we did. And I think I played a little guitar on something on one of his ideas. I sent him some of uh, my ideas and then it just went back and forth, back and forth through emails and text messages. And at some point he said, this really is not working. So why don't you come over to the studio? So I went over to the studio. We sat in front of each other with two acoustic guitars and we wrote, Girl, I Love You. We'd never written like that before ever. We'd always been in a rehearsal room and there's four of us. Rick brings in an idea. Todd goes, oh, I got this bass thing. Or Michael said, you know, I've got this drum groove. Or I'm like, I have this chord progression and this really shitty melody. Like what, what do we do with all of those things? That's how we worked before. So, um, the pandemic lockdown sort of dissolves. I went over to the studio and we sat and we talked and we had another really great conversation. And I told him, I said, listen, here's what I'm thinking and here's what I want to do. And I want to re-release our first record. It's dumb that it's just not out in the ether. I like to add some things to that. I like, you know, we have lots of other material floating around. I'd like to put it together and I'd like to do that. And at the same time, I'd like to release our song together too. And he wrote back, he, he was like, not wrote back, but he sat there and he was like, dude, if you have the energy to do that, God bless you, let's, <laughs> let's do it. And he's like, what do you need from me? And I said, well, whatever you want. Whatever you want to contribute or not contribute, yeah. I'm totally fine with that. And he goes, look, if you want to go out there and be the mouthpiece, be the mouthpiece. He goes, I, I'm not that guy anymore. I can't do that. I'm like, it's okay. I never yeah. was that guy. Maybe right. that's why I have energy now. To <laughs> do it. So yeah. you know, he gave me his blessing. I'm like, okay. We're going to put this out. And I started the remastering process. So it all was, you know, it was this big sort of thing that ended with us doing this song together. And we started some other songs. We'll see if we get to them or not. But it's been yeah. a great reconnection. And I'm very happy. It's a little song. And it oddly sounds like where the first album sort of ended off. It, you know, we made a second record that doesn't sound a lot like our first record. Mm -hmm. 
And Agreed. there's many reasons about that. And we'll certainly, if you want to have a conversation about that down the line, because to. I probably next year we'll, we'll revisit our second record. Because I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I was going to, I think I have a complete alternate version of it that might be a lot more like our first record. So wow, I think that okay. might be fun for listeners to do. Let's give it a listen. This is Girl I Love You, a brand new single from Lions and Ghosts.
Nice work, man. This this is available on all the streaming platforms. I, I looked them up. It's everywhere, as well as the album. You've been busy. I know uh, remastering and, and getting everything ready for streaming. I know that's a lot of work that you had to go through for the album re-release. And you, also, I just realized that your your label it has a, another new project that's just dropping for Bird Streets, a new album called Lagoon. You're, you're a busy guy. I'm, I'm pretty busy. And, you know... It... Not for nothing. It you re, you really have to think about. It does take a small village to make anything happen these days, right? So you know, not only I'm very thankful to my manager Jeff, but also our sister company uh, Deco Entertainment, who all the all the kids that work there have all been helping with all of this and been on the journey with us through awesome. all of this. And John Broder, the singer of Bird Streets, is an incredible talent and an amazing lyricist and songwriter. And so I was working with him throughout the pandemic and I produced some songs for him. You know, I I listened to his woes as an artist. And as we were finishing up some of these songs, John has enough stuff to make three records. It's crazy, his output. But this one record, Lagoon, all sort of sat together. It was his divorce record. And I really resonated that because I had, had just finished going through a very long divorce. And so I felt a really deep connection to all of his songs and him as an artist. And I called lots of old friends to work with me on it. I mean, I have Amy Mann came and played bass on it. Yeah, I saw that. Super cool. I I love her voice. Oh, she's amazing. So gifted as a songwriter and a singer. And I used a lot of the guys that, that used to work with her and myself and we all recorded together. I had them play with John, brilliant singer songwriter from England, Ed Harcourt. He's on one of the tracks and plays piano and bass and sings with John. So we're, his record is this beautiful labor of love that has Pat Sansone from Wilco. He's a huge Wilco fan. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, he's got, three or four, maybe five producers on the record. Well, and Jody Stevens from Big Star. I mean, there's some some great people. It's it's super crazy. And so he's sitting on this record and I'm like, okay, listen, I want to put this record out on my label. And what I can offer you is incredible distribution because Deco is part of the Warner Brothers group. So we do have that going. We don't have a ton of money, but we but we have a lot of people with a lot of love and everybody showered that record with love and it's just come out and it's it's blown up on spotify and the song sleeper agent is doing great numbers in the in the years that uh, has been since john's first record sleeper agent has climbed its way up into the top five now of most streamed songs for him so something's right So that, that, thank you for bringing up the thing about Sparkle Plenty Records, our little label that could. And Yeah, that's a, it's a really good album. In fact, I'll put a link for it uh, in the show notes so people can know where oh, to find you. that. And um, it'll just be a, a click away for people. Because if, you know, a lot of people are like me, they want to hear something that's new. And um, so when people are checking out Lions and Ghosts, they can also check out this new album, Lagoon, which is, it's, it's really good. In fact, I was just listening to it this morning as I was finishing prep for our chat definitely worth listening to very well written and great production. I mean, you, you produce on it as well and a great cast of musicians, as you mentioned, and uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely worth checking out. So Michael, I want to thank you. 
I have uh, really, really enjoyed our chat. I've loved getting to know you a little bit here, and um, I have uh, uh, just a deep respect for the work that you've done. And man, you've, you've worked with some great people. And this new album, the new released album, re-release of this album, I, I just absolutely love it. it. It's new to me. I've, I've listened to it several times over the last couple of months, and I hope everybody else listens to it too, because it really is it's it's a fantastic album it's great to listen to top to bottom and uh can't thank you enough for giving me your time today yeah thank you brian it was a real pleasure i enjoyed the chat too for sure and thanks for giving me the opportunity to go on and on about these old stories oh it's great i i love i eat i eat the stuff up that's the reason for this podcast so i'm really grateful grateful to have you on so if you've enjoyed my chat with michael lockwood today share it with your friends who enjoy good music as well. That's what helps get this episode out and more people discovering good music. And if you have a moment to share a good review, throw some stars my way, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Those things are the lifeblood of a podcast like this. So thank you very much for that. We'll keep your bags packed and join us on our next Journey to the Stage. And that's a wrap.